Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. She is treasured and prized. For her, he died. Amen. Well, the eminent Bishop J.C. Ryle, he proclaimed that, quote, the best public worship is that which produces the best private Christianity. The best church services for the congregation are those which make its individual members most holy at home and alone. Close quote. What a wonderful reminder. You know, I was once exhorted in my life by a mentor to live as if every waking moment that week was going to be watched on the big screen by the entire church that following Sunday. And that kind of rattled me. I thought about it and I cringed. How differently might we live and speak? How different would our, our movie, our TV, and our internet activity be? What if we all sat down, lowered the lights, and watched the highlights of our week on the big screen? Would God be glorified in our life, or would his name be blasphemed? Say, Pastor, it sounds like you're using shame as a coercion to living a holy life. Well, sadly, our culture has changed the concept of shame to a bad thing. We've changed the meaning of the word in a sense. If someone feels shame today, that's somehow wrong. And society seeks to relieve them of that emotion or of that feeling. But yet if we look to scripture, we find that the act and the feeling of having shame is in fact a common grace given to men. Shame is a restraining force upon men that would otherwise commit unspeakable evils and wickedness. It is the common grace of shame that is administered as a restraining force upon fallen mankind. And we know this because we witness God do something very clearly when he's giving over a society to their lusts and their depravity. What does he remove as a common grace. Shame. You probably even heard the phrase, have you no shame? To possess shame in this sense is a positive thing. A society that has been given the common grace of shame is restrained in their evil. When that is removed, the society has no shame. The results are apparent today. We live in a society where a prior generation would have asked that drag queen giving a show to kindergartners, have you no shame? The answer is no. They have no shame. And that is a symptom of our condition as a society. Indeed, one could call it a sign of the times. It is a removal of common grace upon a society. But as Christians, it sounds odd, but... Do we have shame? If necessary, yes. A convicting shame, not a condemning shame. That is a tool of the Holy Spirit to correct and to sanctify his church. Paul, when exhorting the church at Corinth was, that was engaging in all manner of ungodliness, said to the church, I say this to your shame. Paul exhorted them, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul employed the tool of shame to bring about correction. 
So the next time you consider the phrase, have you no shame? Say, yes, I do. A godly and convicting shame. And I pray that the Holy Spirit not remove that grace from me and that he might apply it liberally in my life when it's needed. The best public worship is that which produces the best private Christianity. The best church services for the congregation are those which make its individual members most holy at home and alone. Amen? Amen. It's a quiet amen. Interesting. All right. Well, last week we began part of our part one of our series titled A Tree Lies, A Temple Dies. And here on Tuesday in the timeline of Passion Week, we witnessed a scene that has really perplexed some throughout the ages. A seemingly strange scene where Jesus has sought out a fig tree, seen leaves upon it. He inspected it for fruit only to find none. Of course, upon seeing no fruit, Jesus famously cursed this fig tree, banishing it from ever producing again. Now, this was not some sort of hunger-driven temper tantrum by Jesus, as critics have often proposed. It was nothing of the sort. In fact, Jesus cursing this fig tree had very little at all to do with Jesus' hunger or with the fig tree. Jesus had ushered in his disciples into what is best described as a living parable. Of course, he had taught this principle before in Luke 13 with the parable of the fig tree, but now it was being demonstrated in real life. The point being, of course, to point to the fruitlessness and the barrenness of the temple to which he was headed, to which he had spent the entire prior evening observing and watching looking upon the spiritual state of the temple and by default, the spiritual state of Israel. Now still this interaction with the fig tree was loaded with analogy and with theology. Jesus' interaction with the the tree because he was hungry, what did it do? It reminded us of his humanity, didn't it? His humanity, Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man, a high priest who can sympathize with those he came to save. A savior who knew what it was to hunger and to thirst. Of course, we also ran headlong into what is known as the kenosis. As Mark seemed to indicate that Jesus did not know if there were figs on the tree and so had gone to investigate. This shines a light on the kenosis, a word derived from Paul speaking in Philippians of Jesus emptying himself when he came to earth. Now, we discussed both what that meant and what that did not mean. How could Jesus have complete omniscience, for example, the day before concerning a donkey and where it would be and how old it would be and that no one would have ever ridden on it and yet today seemingly not know there were figs on the tree? How can he control the wind and the waves in Mark 4 with all creative power and yet need to walk over to the tree to know the state of its fruit? So we did a bit of a deep dive into that last week. If you missed that, it's available online. I encourage you to listen. But how wonderful such a seemingly simple scene that's not a didactic epistle like Romans or or the like contains such huge principles of theology for us to glean and enjoy. 
Of course, our message took us through a bit of plant science as well as we contended with the accusation that Jesus was unfair in cursing a fig tree for not having any figs when the next verse says it was not even the season for figs. There we explored the significance of the tackish, the small green almond-like buds that people would eat on the fig trees before the actual fig would even come. It was the predictor of figs. No tackish would mean no figs. Yet this was a lying tree, wasn't it? Theologians call this the tree of hypocrisy because it was not what it seemed. We learn that fruit, or tackish, precedes the leaves, right? It comes before the leaves. So if a tree had leaves on it, it's telling you that it had fruit. Yet when he came to it, verse 13, Jesus found nothing but leaves. It advertised itself as one thing, but upon inspection was something else entirely. Indeed, we've seen that all of Israel has flouted their leaves. The temple was full of people showing off their leaves. Dead religion, promising fruit. But as they used to say in the West, it was all hat, no cattle. All hat, no cattle. For the nation of Israel, their religious leaves covered their spiritual nakedness. But when you inspect it, you'll find it worthless. You'll find it barren. The fig tree was adorned with beautiful green leaves, just as the temple was adorned with gold. We saw very clearly that the state of the fig tree represented the state of the temple. And the cursing of the fig tree was a precursor to the cursing of the temple. And today that precursor of both the cursing and destruction of the temple is not only brought to further fruition, but we'll see that Jesus' incredible actions today portend an even greater destruction of the temple to come. Just as the fig tree would need to be destroyed, so must the temple, which had become worthless and fruitless in its worship. Today we see a declaration that is wielded and that is enforced in a tangible action. And that is the declaration that false worship, empty worship, brings destruction. Not only on a temple, but on a people and on a nation. We were reminded last week that judgment begins at the house of God. For the temple, this judgment is an old, worn path. This will not be the first time, nor will this be the last time, that judgment will be foretold, decreed, and executed upon the temple. So with that, beloved, let us look to our text, Mark 11, 15 through 16. Mark 11, 15 through 16. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is the cry of our heart this morning that we see you as you are. Lord, not as we have imagined you to be, but as Scripture reveals you to be. 
And Lord, in that same light that we might see ourselves in the light, in the mirror of Scripture, Lord, that we might see ourselves as we are. Lord, that even as we are being changed and sanctified and daily made new through the washing of your word and of your blood, Lord, that we are a people that must be changed. Lord, that we must daily be renewed. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would go before us in this text. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. On September 6th, 1520, the eminent reformer Martin Luther, he wrote a widely circulated and very public letter to Pope Leo X. And in it he wrote the following, quote, The Roman Church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. Close quote. Martin Luther was a man who did not desire to overthrow the Catholic Church. He believed that Rome could be rehabilitated. Even with the egregious actions he witnessed, he still thought the Mother Church could be salvaged and saved. Of course, time would prove otherwise. Time would prove that Rome offered an irreconcilable gospel of infused righteousness, saying that salvation and justification by grace alone through faith alone is impossible, that we must work as hard as we can, works righteousness, and that Jesus comes in at the end and he infuses us with the remaining righteousness to somehow get over the goal line. My works get me 53% there, and I need 47% of some Jesus infusion to get me over the line. That's infused righteousness taught by Rome. This is what Martin Luther and the Reformers fought against. In fact, in Canon 9 of the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholic Church, it reads, quote, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. Close quote meaning it is an abomination to claim justification through faith alone. Now, of course, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone became the anthems of the Reformation, declaring that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that good works do not add to our salvation. They are evidence of our salvation. All the glory goes to God for it. If we earned part of our salvation through works, we would also share in the glory for it, in the credit for it. May it never be so. Of course, the late, of course, the latter reformers knew the Catholic Church could not be reformed from within, that the whole system was irretrievable. But Luther was not the first to witness an apostate religion that was initially founded on truth. But over time, and without a fidelity to Scripture, became a religious pit of hypocrisy, covered in leaves, but utterly naked in fruits. Now, the parallels of the temple worship and the stunning gold ornament and architecture carry such parallels to the beautiful Catholic churches one can see all around the world. Beautiful beyond description, yet there is no gospel to be found. At best, a works righteousness, which is precisely what the Judaism of Jesus' day had become. Now, as this incredible scene opens for us, let us begin with verse 15. Verse 15. 
Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Now, beloved, I hope you have your thinking hats on, your student hats, if you will, because we must pause here for a bit, that we might gain some context. We not only need some historical context of the temple to to bring this to life, but we also need some architectural background so we can see this scene rightly. Now, many may not be familiar with the history of the temple, why it stands where it is in Jerusalem. But we'll first look at that. Now note that Mark says, then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. Now where Jesus would have entered is known as the Eastern Gate. This is also known as the Golden Gate. Now out of the eight different gates that go into Jerusalem, this one is unique today. It's the only gate that is filled in and walled off. If you were to see a picture of this gate, most would recognize it immediately. Well, in the 1500s, the Muslims, the Ottoman Turks, they filled in this gate with rock because the Jews believed that Messiah arrived through that gate and they wanted to stop it from happening. And just to make sure that this Jewish Messiah would not come back, they put a Muslim cemetery right in the front of that gate as well, thinking that Jewish Messiah would never walk on a cemetery. It is there to this day. I've stood on it with my own two feet. But one has to smile. They're a little bit late because Messiah has already come through that gate on the way to save his people. And here we are in our text today. But what brings the temple here? Why is it here? Let me give you a 35,000 foot flyover view of temple history so we can appreciate where we find ourselves. If we look back to Genesis 22, you'll notice the story of Abraham. And here we know the story. Abraham takes Isaac with him to go and sacrifice to God, knowing that they had no animal with them. And Abraham told Isaac what? That God would provide the sacrifice. And here they ascend a hill or a mount where Abraham would put Isaac on the altar. Of course, we all know that God stopped Abraham and he provided a ram in the thicket to be sacrificed. And it was this exact spot where Isaac was taken off the altar and where the ram was sacrificed by Abraham in worship that is the focal point of our temple. This is known as Mount Moriah. That establishes our spot, the reason for it being where it is. Now, about a thousand years later, King David purchased a threshing floor on Mount Moriah from Aruna, the Jebusite, also called Ornan. And he erected an altar there in 2 Samuel 24 to beseech the Lord that a plague might be held back from his people. Now, of course, because David wanted to build a grand temple to the Lord, he thought it it wrong that he should live in a palace and that God lives out there in a tent. But scripture tells us that David was a man of war. Thus, the Lord did not permit him to build his temple. That duty was passed down to his son, Solomon. Of course, Solomon built the first and great temple known as Solomon's temple on this very location. Scripture contains much about its construction and its use. This was the first temple. And Solomon's temple lasted over 400 years until it was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. It was utterly plundered. All was taken or destroyed. But why? Why? Because there's nothing new under the sun. Israel was apostate. 
The Judaism of the day was defiled and sinful. Its people were full of idolatry and sin. Not only its people, but its leaders. Jeremiah looked on this time and he wrote, The shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord, so they do not prosper and their flock is scattered. It gets worse. Jeremiah writes, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Meaning the spiritual leadership of Israel was completely corrupt. It was inept and idolatrous. The priests, the shepherds, they were wicked. And thus God uses the Babylonians as his instruments to judge this apostate worship. And we know the nation of Israel was brought into captivity. But why the entire nation? Doesn't it just say that the shepherds were corrupt? That the leadership was wicked? We must understand a principle here, beloved. Worship defines a nation. Who you worship, how you worship, is the single most defining aspect of any nation. Think about it. Go to any time in history, right down to 2022. It's all about worship. It defines everything about that nation, the people, everything. This is where God looks and where God judges. It is upon the heart of worship that judgment is either meted out or it is restrained. Where God is pleased or where God is angered. We must understand this if we are to understand the history of the temple and the history of Israel, indeed the entire history of mankind, that it's all about worship. Idolatry took down the first temple. The Babylonians came in and they laid waste to the most magnificent structure. So magnificent, so beautiful and ornate that words would fail to do it justice. Israel had fallen into a false worship and God won't have it. It will take the entire nation down and off they go to Babylon, the temple in ruin. Of course, those who are in our adult Sunday school class as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah know that after 70 years, they were given permission to return and to rebuild the temple. We see finally in Ezra 6 that this temple, the second temple, is finally completed. But it's nothing like Solomon's temple, not even close. But the people now have a place to worship again. But what is the predictable cycle of Israel? They continued to apostatize. Thus, the second temple is now allowed to be desecrated. Pagan rulers erected a statue of Jupiter in the very midst of the temple. And just to add insult to injury, they sacrificed pigs, unclean animals on the altar. That was eventually done away with. And the second temple still stood. The heart of worship that the Lord desired from his people never returned. The state of worship remained dead religion. Works righteousness. The letter of the law hypocrisy. And this continued all the way through the intertestamental period. The time between the Old and the New Testament. All the way up to the first century where King Herod decided to make a grand addition onto the second temple. Now it would be this addition that Jesus would have walked into in our text today. 
What Jesus would do in the temple today was just a foretaste. It was just a forerunner of what was to come in only a few short years. In AD 70, of course, most know that Roman armies destroyed the temple. The only remaining part of what of that today is the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall. So we notice the pattern, some would say, of the temple. But it would be better said that we see very clearly the pattern of men's hearts. It's a continual rise and falling. Idolatry in the first temple, and the Babylonians come and destroy it. Rebuild it again, start anew, and false worship takes hold again and is desecrated by pagans, finally being destroyed again in 70 A.D. Now we'll talk much more about this when we get to Mark 13, much much more in depth, but there will yet again be another temple in Jerusalem. During the time of tribulation, we find this spoken of in Daniel 9, and again a fourth temple, Messiah's temple, in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, some hold varying views on those events, but that is a very brief history of the temple. Now, there's so much more that could be said as we quite literally can track the rise and the fall of the entire nation of Israel by the study of the temple. Throughout history, the temple is a continual outward manifestation of the inward condition of the heart of Israel. So what is the takeaway of that entire history? Why does Lanesville 2022 care about all this history of the temple we just learned? The takeaway is this. False worship will be judged and destroyed. And there is coming a day when true worship will be restored. And we look forward to that day with an ever-increasing expectation. Now you may know Mount Moriah by another name, Mount Zion, or today called the Temple Mount. And today it is the single most hotly contested piece of real estate on the planet. And standing in the, that place today is a Muslim shrine called the Dome of the Rock. A very famous icon and photos of Jerusalem, you'd recognize it with the Golden Dome and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. As we said today, our scene takes place in what is known as Herod's Temple. And it really is just a grand addition onto the second temple. But it had a very distinct design, and it was all with great purpose. Again, something we must understand if we're going to glean all the meaning from our text. Now, very quickly, this temple, Herod's temple, was a massive 37-acre site. had walls surrounding it. And when you would first walk into the temple, you would come into an area that was known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, this was a place that anyone could come. This was an absolute buzz of activity. On Passover, it would be like the loudest marketplace you ever saw or ever heard. Barclay describes further the temple structure, quote, at the inner edge of the court of the Gentiles, the inner edge was a low wall with tablets set into it, in which it said if a Gentile passed that point, the penalty was death. The next court was called the court of the women. And it was so called because unless women had come to actually offer sacrifice, they might not proceed further past that point. And next was the court of the Israelites. And in it the congregation gathered on great occasions. And from it the offerings were handed by the worshipers to the priests. The inmost court 
was the court of the priests. This was the Holy of Holies, which the high priest was only permitted to come into once a year. But I want us to focus on the court of the Gentiles. It is here that the foul manifestation of the worship is put on display. To be sure, there's really nothing at all religious or worshipful about this outside court. It was a completely secularized marketplace. It was a business, but not just any business. It was a business that was in cahoots with the religious leaders. This was an enormous marketplace filled with tens of thousands of people during Passover. Now, we're going to do a deeper dive into what was going on in this court of the Gentiles as we look at and as we explain our Savior's response to what he sees. Looking back to our verse, verse 15, it says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. The sights, the sounds, the smells, what a scene this would have been. Now, as you know, this was not Jesus' first time having done this. We see in John chapter 2 that this was essentially how Jesus inaugurated his earthly ministry. He made a scourge of cords and did exactly the same thing. Beloved, we cannot miss Jesus' focus here. He both inaugurates and he sunsets his ministry on earth by pointing to fidelity in worship. They are the bookends of his ministry. Because everything rises and falls on worship. We are all worshipers. Every one of us, all humans, all time, all places, worshipers. And what we worship and how we worship dictates the direction of an entire nation, an entire people. America 2022 is defined by her worship. Indiana is defined by her worship. The city of Lanesville is defined by her worship. Your home is defined by your worship. It may well be a worship of self or a worship of material goods, but it is worship all the same. Every person you will ever meet is a worshiper. And the vast majority of the worship throughout human history, both external and the worship of the heart, has been a false worship. It is no different today as Jesus walks into his father's house. He drives out first those who were buying and selling in the temple. Well, buying and selling what? And what's wrong with that? Well, this area where people are buying and selling were known as the Bazaar of Annas. These temple shops were essentially owned by the high priest Annas. Now, high priests weren't in their position because of their religious accomplishment. This was a political appointment. They were part of the ruling class. And this buying and selling was his own wicked empire. James Ed Edward writes, James Edwards writes, quote, that is why Jesus was brought first before Annas when he was arrested in John 18, 13. Annas was delighted to gloat over this man who had struck such a blow to his evil monopoly, close quote. What we have here, beloved, is a scam and a racket. Now you may ask, why would I need to buy anything at the temple? 
Those coming for Passover would well have already selected their finest lamb from home. It's spotless. I brought all the necessary salt and all the oil that I need. What is there to be sold in the Gentile court? You ever been to a movie theater? A nice one? You sit down and the lights are on before the show and I sneak out that candy bar you brought from home. Or you pull out that soda you brought from home and what happens? Excuse me, sir, you can't bring that in here. You have to buy what? You have to buy it from us. No outside food and drink. Here's our pack of Twizzlers for $20. That is exactly what was happening here. You see the scam they had going? In order for your sacrifice to be brought in for an offering, it had to be inspected and approved by the priest checking the entrance. And if your sacrifice was not pure enough, you couldn't bring it in. But you'll be happy to know that we have some excellent pre-approved animals available right inside here with a 1,000% markup. It was legalized robbery. And it goes on. Mark dials in on some specifics. He talks about the money changers as well. Jesus flips their tables. What's the scam there? When you would come to sacrifice at the temple, you would pay what is known as a temple tax. But people would come from all different areas, and they were bringing all different kinds of currencies. And you couldn't pay your temple tax in just any currency. You had to pay it in either a Jewish or a Galilean half shekel. So the Greek and the Roman and the Syrian currency that many brought into the temple weren't allowed because, ironically, they had idolatrous images on them. So they could not be used. But you'll be happy to know that we can exchange that wicked pagan money for acceptable money with an exorbitant upcharge. It was foul. And Jesus sees it all. Proverbs 11.1 1 tells us that a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And this is happening in the house of the Lord. It was commercialized religion. The precepts of the Lord and his worship don't even enter into the minds of those who are there to fleece the flock. And this entire area was dedicated wholesale to this very pursuit. Now Mark goes out of his way to mention at the end of verse 15, and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now why call this out specifically? Well, if one reads Leviticus, we'll note that the offering of doves was a minimum sacrifice allowable in the temple. It was an offering that was given by only the very poor. Had the person bought the doves back in their hometown, it would have cost them the equivalent of three to five cents. It would have been bought, it would have been sold, bought and sold in the court of the Gentiles for three to five dollars. It was a concentrated effort to fleece those who were the most vulnerable in society. There was no shame. Barclay writes, quote, Outside doves cost as little as three and a half pence a pair. Inside they were as much as 75 pence a pair. Close quote. It was absolute rank corruption. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, quote, The whole bazaar of Annas was vile. 
and had become a hangout for every crook, charlatan, conman of all sorts plying their trade. Close quote. Do we see how bad things had gotten? We need to take pains to paint a picture so that all Jesus is doing, and as we will see next week, all he will say makes great sense and is utterly reasonable. Just as we demonstrated that Jesus did not have a hunger-induced tirade against the fig tree when he cursed it, nor here is Jesus acting in any sort of unrighteous anger. This is a holy anger, indeed a righteous fury. I've had conversations with people about this very thing. Well, I don't serve an angry God. Scripture says that God is angry with the wicked every day. You could take it up with the author. He's full of wrath. He's full of fury. Again, just the messenger. Yet as we've explored before, but it bears repeating, we need not as Christians run from this attribute of God, of his anger, of his wrath. Christians run from it or we downplay this attribute because we think that God's anger is like our anger, that it's capricious, that it's irrational, that it's unpredictable like ours. Most of us sin in our anger. Most of our anger is because our kingdom was attacked. Our expectations weren't met. When we become angry, we change. Something is there that was not there before we chose to be angry. For God, none of that is true. God does not change, meaning he does not become unpredictably and irrationally angry in a way that was not there before. He does not change. His anger is righteous. It's holy. It's in defense of his holiness. It's in defense of his name. And we may try to classify some of our anger in life as holy or righteous anger, but the truth is probably 99% of it is not. A holy anger, a righteous anger, is one that arises within us in defense of God and his name when it is his kingdom that is being sullied or attacked, when you are angry at what angers God. And James tells us in his epistle, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man, notice the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man is not the anger of God. It is not the righteous fury we see of our Lord in our text. Let's look to our last verse, saints, verse 16. Verse 16. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now that seems a bit of an odd one. If we don't have any background, but once we do, it will make perfect sense. Now, if you can visualize for me the geography, you have the main part of Jerusalem here. Then you have the temple. Then on the other side was the Mount of Olives. Okay? And if you wanted to go from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, which is a very common route, or from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, you had two choices. You could either go around the entire 37-acre complex to get there, or do what? Cut through the court of the Gentiles. Well, guess what people did? They cut through. Now, to be sure, we could camp on that all day. As we say in pastor land, that will preach. 
But simply they were using the house of the Lord for their own uses and convenience. The church was there to serve them. They were not there to serve the church. They would traverse the holy ground without a second thought as to where they were. They came to the temple with no heart to serve God or to worship. It was a means to getting what they want. It made their life easier. It made their journey more pleasurable. Hey, the world is harsh. These people are nice. I remember the first time I read the Puritan John Owen, and he spoke of people that dwell within the church for the benefits it provides. As God gives the good fruit and and the peaceable righteousness and the abundance that he gives his people, even the lost enjoy being around that. I'm not there for the worship. I don't believe any of that nonsense. But this is where my friends are. This is where people are nice to me. This is where I have a sense of peace. This is where I can make business contacts. This is where I can gain influence in the community. The list goes on and on. The reason some come walking into the court of the Gentiles are many. But they're just cutting through, aren't they? Are they there with their lamb to worship? Are they counted and numbered in the court of the Israelites? Nope, just cutting through. Treating the holy as common and profane. The sacred has been made secular, and they made the sanctuary a shortcut. We've just begun to unfold this scene. As we will see next week, it's actually more of an incredible event than we've yet given it credit for, truly. The history of Israel is the history of her worship. The rising and falling of the temple is the rising and falling of men's hearts out of which flows their worship. Jesus will both inaugurate and will sunset his earthly ministry by pointing to the state of our worship. We are reminded that we do not get to worship on our terms. Jesus gives us command in John 4, 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him, catch this, saints, it's easy to miss it, must worship in spirit and in truth. They must. It's an imperative, meaning it is a command. God has dictated the way in which he will be worshipped and the heart out of which that worship must flow. False worship will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. It can be adorned in all the leaves, but if there is no fruit, it will be cursed and cut down. It can be adorned in gold. Not one stone will be left upon another. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that is good news for true worshipers. We desire for God to receive all the glory and all the honor that is due his name. It's his temple. It's his church. He died for her and he will contend for her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand 
in great humility before you. Lord, your church for whom you love, the church that you prized, the church for whom you died as we sang, Lord, you have great zeal for. Lord, we stand as a recipient of that care, as a recipient of that high price that was paid as born-again believers. Lord, as your church, we are grateful that we might stand in the court of our God, that we might worship. We pray, Lord, that our worship be found true and be found faithful in this age. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.